Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to The Pod in the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering all of the horror franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. As always, I am your host, Mike Snoonian, and there's no one else I'd rather have traveling alongside me for this carnival freak show, where we're carrying around the dusty old bones of Count Dracula himself, than my Dracula expert, Mr. Brian Kuyper. Brian, how are we? I'm doing okay. Uh, I don't know if I can qualify as a Dracula expert, but I'll do my best. Well, uh, a horror expert. Well, our classic Classic era horror. Sure. Okay. I'll take it. <laughs> but we are not alone, are we, today? We have the man who, even if he is pure by heart and says his prayers by night, he is a man who turns to a wolf when the wolf bane blooms. And I forget the rest of the poem. And the autumn moon is bright. Thank you. There we go. From the Cinema Spectre Film Club, Mr. Devon Taylor. Devon, how are we doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, I I would be a werewolf. I'm I'm always werewolf over vampires because living forever sounds horrible. Um, I could I could deal with a, a one monthly transformation every so often, you know. Lawrence Talbot mm-hmm. makes it seem like way bigger deal. I could deal with that, at, you know, once a month. Uh, we're solid. It's all good. Lawrence Talbot invents emo oh, in the Wolfman movies, Jeez right? Louise, what a just baby. like. Oh, this beautiful Romani woman is in love with me, and once a month I have to lock myself up. Somewhere, uh, what a giant whiny for a long I would get over it, get over it. I know, get over it, yeah, yeah, what a sad sack. All right, well, we are about to hit the home stretch of our Frankenstein series here, and we are in decidedly like far more lighthearted fare than like the thematically rich veins that we tapped into with like the first pair of James Whale movies. It is like really fascinating to see where Universal viewed horror movies, in particular Frankenstein's monster by like the mid-1940s. Like they are really shunting these movies to the side. It kind of feels like Paramount in the 80s with the Friday the 13th movies where... They're like, we'll make these movies because they make us money, but we don't have to like it. Totally. I mean, there's the pretty much her assigning a director at that point and saying, hey, write it and, you know, whatever you do, just bringing it under budget, you're good. Yeah. That's about it. You can't show too much skin and you right. can't make it too violent. It's pretty much it. They're in yep. the they're in the by the game plan 
portion of the the franchise at this mm-hmm. point you know it's just like okay we got the formula and that's you know kind of how i feel that friday yeah. 13th uh, is structurally but yeah. at least i uh, hear you know they you know follow the formula and it's like okay now we gotta shake it up now we're in the group uh uh films or now we're in the versus films you know so it's like uh, at least they get a slight reset here but at the same time they're kind of uh like uh, in the in the groove of it and they're just you know 40 years before the monster squad where mm-hmm. we thought that was like really innovative how they're kind of like throwing like every monster on screen and how fun that is like here's like Eric Kenton 40 years before like just throwing everything but the kitchen sink on screen here with the house of frankenstein yeah i mean monster squad's an interesting thing too i mean i don't mean to go too far off subject but oh i already did that awesome i mean one of the things with it is like it's not a universal film it's what tristar and they just to show how little universal cared about the monsters at that point you know late 80s that okay you can pretty much just use the makeup from from Karloff you can make Dracula look pretty much exactly like Bella mm-hmm. Lugosi I it doesn't matter we're good do whatever you want oh if Dracula wants to call a five-year-old girl a bitch go ahead that's right you know what it's the 80s that's <laughs> what we do I know, and and now and think of that like in contrast to like you know the the super limited uh, stipulations they have you know with like the the superhero movies and whatnot like especially with like the weird thing that Marvel and Sony have they're like okay we have this character uh, you can't say this name but you can use this character but like yeah back yeah. then but like back for Monster Squad they're just like sure yeah go ahead do whatever you want yeah. Well, I mean, then in the 50s when Hammer tried to redo that and they said, okay, if you have any resemblance with In Curse of Frankenstein to... We see a a bolt. Yeah, if we see a bolt in his neck, it's going to be, we will come down on you with all of the power of the law to stop this movie. And so, which is incredible. We will catapult Jack Pierce's body across the ocean <laughs> and shoot him at you like a cannon. Well, it's okay. funny because in a few years, uh, Universal was like, hey, let's partner up and let's make yep. movies together. Uh, so It's funny how that works. Yeah. It's funny how fortunes Money. change in like a couple of years. <laughs> Money can help uh, with those yeah. situations. That's right. Right. Yeah. So there's some kind of news with universal and the universal monsters this past week as well and that the dark universe is kind of sort of being resurrected as a theme park right and the details seem pretty scant because i don't know about you guys but i like universal orlando is my happy place like Mm -hmm. i've gone there a couple times it's like when I graduated from grad school, it's the first place, like the literally the day my class ended. The next morning I shunted my family onto a plane in July and like we're running around Universal Orlando because I want to run around Hogwarts going, I'm a fucking wizard, Harry. Like that's what I wanted to do after two years of school. <laughs> and then we went last April break and it was amazing. And I rode the Velocicoaster and thought I was going to die. 
and it was the most fun experience of my life. My daughter was like, this is incredible. I love this ride. It's amazing. And I'm like, I never want to ride this again. I'm going to die. Uh, I will just stick to the Hulk coaster forever, but I'm glad I did this. But it looks like they're going to bring back like the Bride of Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde, Dracula, the Invisible Man. And are they replacing rides and just rebranding them as like Dark Universe rides? Or are they building a la like the Super Nintendo Park, like a whole new dark universe like section of the park for universal Mm. or do we even know i don't think so i mean i i mean you know how people get whenever uh certain rides are taken away so i feel like we would have been hearing that already like oh what is it replacing uh we would have already heard like on the murmurs of you better not touch uh you know this thing uh that nobody's written in 10 years um but uh yeah so i'm not exactly sure but i mean i I think it'll be uh interesting though well, they took away the Monster Cafe. Right. And yeah. it made me incredibly sad. I'm like, I never went there, which was my fault. But I'm like, Same, yeah. but I wanted to eat overpriced chicken fingers branded like the Bride of Chicken Fingers, you know? like Absolutely. The, you know, the invisible. I wanted to have like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde's fruit punch for $12 in like a little <laughs> steamy cup. Um, and it just made me, but it made me sad that like, that's how little they thought of like the monsters at this point, which right. is what built universal. It was just going to become like another minions attraction. It's like, Oh God, do we really need another one of these? Well, it's so, I feel like we're sort of, and I've mentioned this in some ways before we're in sort of this Frankenstein Renaissance. I mean, we've got mm-hmm. Lisa Frankenstein, coming out in a week or so uh poor things is nominated for best picture um and that's got a lot of frankenstein influence maggie gyllenhaal's bride of frankenstein remake is announced as going forward of course we're getting cast news on um guillermo del toro's movie so it's just feels like universal is saying hey you know uh, these things are kind of hot again so let's Mm -hmm. pull this corpse back out that failed before and see if we can shock it to life is what kind of what it feels like and it's fascinating too that like we're getting this frankenstein renaissance but yet uh the dracula movies have right did not do at least well like financially or like you know so like they don't seem to be as hot but um people are loving uh the monster man yeah yeah it's true uh it's a shame you know because because renfield and uh last voyage of the demeter didn't do very well i think that killed karen kasama's dracula you know which is a shame so yeah that is a shame i would have loved to have Mm -hmm. seen that these things come in cycles but it should be interesting i would love to see because you know i'm a theme park nerd anyway like i just love roller coasters oh i know We're, we're actually going this summer and then i saw that news hit and it's like really yeah not Okay, whatever. So, <laughs> so in a few years when it opens up, you know, right. we'll definitely have to make a return trip. For sure. But let's let's move on. Let's talk yes. about <laughs> the House of Frankenstein. Let's talk a little bit about this movie. And you know, we're not quite in horror comedy territory yet. It's not gonna really be until we get to like Abbott and Costello. But there is like a certain flair and aspect of like camp with these next two pictures. It's undeniable. Everyone seems to know what kind of picture they're on board for. 
no one's really taking things like too seriously and everyone is kind of just sort of having a good time with this right i mean that's mm-hmm. kind of like the general feel i get here so well yeah i mean it seems like especially karloff is just chewing the scenery he's having the time of his life and he's like oh okay let's and yeah. we'll talk about that when we talk about the movie because i just i don't know he's my favorite thing about it he's so happy that the only makeup he has to put on <laughs> is, is that, that beard that beard exactly for a little bit yeah you know? and i'm sure that Jack Pierce was like, well, let me individually glue on every <laughs> hair. And he's like, no, Jack, we're not we're not doing an eight hour makeup job on this beard. Like I just brought a fright rig from like the novelty shop. It came with an exploding cigar. Like that's what we're doing <laughs> for this movie. Okay. Yeah, there, uh, I didn't see Son or Ghost of Frankenstein, but as far as I like, compared to like the earlier ones, this one does have like a bit more of a, it just has a little bit more fun energy to it. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the drama is a little bit more melodramatic rather than it kind of being as more serious. There's not as much philosophizing throughout this film as well. You know, it's like, it really does kind of have, a, 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 a quite a different energy compared to the earlier ones. It feels to me in a lot of ways like a continuation of the energy of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Oh yeah, you know, where, as opposed to Ghost, which tries to take itself, I think, too seriously. Um, and so th- it's it's a nice, it hits the tone about right, I think, mm-hmm. for what it is. Obviously, after the success of, like, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, Universal knew there's one solution, like, more monsters. It was the more cowbell of its day, basically. You know, we need more monsters in here. We have a Frankenstein. We have a Wolfman. We got to add the other big guy in here. We got to add Dracula into the mix. But before they get to that decision, they have, like, other permeations and other mixes and matches they're going to do. So in June of 43, Universal announced the title The Chamber of Horrors, where originally was going to be The Invisible Man, The Mad Ghoul, which had been a title that had come out to some critical and financial success the year before, The Mummy, and some other assorted bad guys would kind of meet up with one another. George Wagner was set to produce, uh, Karloff, Cheney Jr., Lugosi, Peter Lorre, Claude Rains, uh, Henry Hull, who had been the werewolf and the werewolf of London. They were all set to at least star or appear in the movie in some shape or form. And obviously, like, this movie never got made. Variety at this time is making all sort of announcements about horror titles that never came out. And to be quite honest, like, they make so many announcements about so many titles you kind of just wonder if they're just making them up to see if they're going to hit on one of them. Like, what sounds at least plausible and if they're going to, like, stick on something. And they include, like, a Val Luton title called The Creep by Night that would include a lineup of Dracula, Frankenstein's Monster, because remember, these are public domain characters, so anyone could make a Dracula movie. Correct. I mean, am I wrong in this? Are there um, public domain now? Dracula, I think, was public domain by that point. Okay. Uh, it hadn't been in thirty-one though when they That's made true. the first one. Uh, mm. Frankenstein's monster most definitely was um, interesting. The Invisible Man, Cat People, uh, right. being part of that, uh, considering that the Cat People are never seen in Cat People, right. 
that would be a challenge. Um, yeah, this sounds like bullshit to me because yeah. Val Luton, I don't see him this touching not something his like kind of this movie. with a 10-foot pole. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they're, just throwing, they're just throwing words out there and seeing what catches. <laughs> and I mean, and by and the speed at which they're able to make these, like, I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility for like, they yeah. get a little bit of buzz going back. All right, get the script going now. I'll see you in three days. <laughs> this this sounds to me like an RKO executive spouting his mouth up. Mouth off mm-hmm. and not actually something that came from Luton or uh, right. anyone in that uh, filmmaking unit at that right. time. There's just, I just right. don't see it. Right. A yeah. lot of scotch being poured, right. a lot of cigars being smoked, Yeah, you know, late night at a bar and you got like some off the record conversation, right. quote unquote, and then some reporter variety just deciding what if we run with it? But they were like, that was one example of like maybe they were all at the Lionel listed. Atwill orgy and just having oh this my conversation. Goodness. Can you, you imagine? Know? And um, yeah, <laughs> variety would print like Lionel Atwill is going to re- release his like the stag people, and then you realize <laughs> no, it was a stag party, <laughs> and if we release that. We're all going to prison. Right. Um, so Chamber of Horrors was the original title. It gives way to the movie title, The Devil's Brood, mm-hmm. um, which would then get, which would be the shooting title, which would then become The House of Frankenstein. And that prep for that would begin in August of 43. The cast wasn't actually put together until February of the next year. Uh, and to give you an idea of like where the cast was in terms of the pecking order, here are the respective salaries for the performers. Karloff is going to get 20000 for fulfilling the second film of a two-picture deal with Universal. And from what I could tell, it looks like the first movie of that deal was The Climax, which was directed with George Wagner and also came out in '44, and also sounded like the title of a movie that Lionel Atwill would have been interested in <laughs> yeah. at that time. It was more or less a sequel or intended to be a sequel to the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, I haven't actually seen that movie. I own that movie. I haven't seen it yet. Um, It's one that I've heard is not very good. Right. Um, But uh, you had said that like at this, this is right before he goes to work. Yeah. Yeah. So after this, Karloff would um, go and start shooting Isle of the Dead with Val Luton. Um, and Body Snatchers the next year. Well, what happened was uh, during uh, the beginning of the shooting of Isle of the Dead, he his back he he had to have back surgery, so he he just couldn't continue. He was a trooper. He tried to do it. They shut down production entirely. Uh, he recuperated, and they while they were getting the cast back together. For Isle of the Dead, it was going to take a little time to get all of that back together. They made the Body Snatcher uh, before it, uh, which is uh, before finishing um, Isle of the Dead. And uh, the Body Snatcher, I think, is kind of a masterpiece. It's yeah, um, he should have been nominated for that. Yeah, there. I mean, his performance is remarkable, but the movie itself—I I don't know—it's hard to pick a favorite Luton, but I mean, it—it's really a great mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you had said before, like Karloff went so far as to say that like Val Luton saved yeah. Karloff's career, kind of rescued him from doing 
these lower yeah. tier pictures with Universal. It was He's between not so great. Yeah, it was between Luton and going to Broadway to do Arsenic and Old Lace that really sort of uh, reinvigorated him as mm-hmm. an actor. Um, he never really complained about being a horror typecast yeah. in the horror realm. Um, but I imagine eventually, you know, you do anything that's sort of in the same vein for too long, you're going to want to stretch yeah. your limbs a little bit. And that's probably and, why he like started switching the characters around too, you know, to like kind of keep himself yeah. fresh as, as Karloff yeah. uh, carries this franchise on his back. Well, the nice thing about the Luton movies is he really plays a different role in each movie. Uh, mm-hmm. In the Columbia films, he's kind of always playing the same character. Um, here he gets to really go for it as mm-hmm. Dr. Neiman. I mean, he's he's not taking it too seriously. He's like, yeah. ah, let's just have a good time. Um, he knows his, who his audience is, and he I think he gives a very fun performance. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. He never phoned it in, even if he didn't no. think the material was great. He always and- went for it. And I'm sure if there, there ever was a, if there ever was a private moment where he felt like I'm tired of doing these films, even if the money is very good, like he wanted to do more as an actor and he was tired of like getting these roles offered to him. He could look at his friend Lugosi and see what Lugosi was going through, sure. like doing the poverty role films if he was getting anything at all or like really not getting any pictures offered to him and having to like tour the country doing one week stints playing Dracula on stage in these like 500 seat theaters and having to like tour doing that in his sixties and what must've been like really like backbreaking work and like exhausting work. Absolutely. Just to say financially solvent. Like Karloff would look at that and be like, well, that's the alternative. Like that's what I could be doing. And then seeing like, Oh, I will gladly take 20 grand to play a mad scientist for a month or two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, honestly, I mean, these, the shooting schedule on these, I can't imagine being very long. Yeah. It's a month at most. Yeah. Uh, Chaney Jr. He's going to make 10 grand for his third appearance as the Wolfman, which makes sense. Like he's the kind of the, Mm -hmm. you know, appears midway through and he's kind of your gets a lot of screen time, probably the most behind Karloff or the second half of the movie. Uh, John Carradine and Jay Carol Nash, who play poor, plays poor Daniel, they net seven grand apiece. Uh, Lionel Atwill and George Zuko, they make seventeen hundred and fifty and fifteen hundred bucks apiece for really what are essentially like single scene, two scene cameos. Yeah. Uh, they're in and out. Like Atwill has gone from being one of the featured players in the first couple appearances like he only has one more appearance in the series with house of dracula he's now an afterthought like now he's really entangled in that scandal he's become kind of person non grata and they're maybe just throwing him a bone at this point and it's a shame because he's you know for the one scene or two scenes he's in briefly he's quite good like i mm-hmm. still like watching at will perform he's got those pipes in yeah. You know, it's kind of sad. And by 1946, like he's passed away from cancer, which is really sad. Yeah. So, I think as well, uh, Atwill really does have a lot of charisma in these roles. Oh, yeah. And he makes the most of even the smallest parts. And I love that about mm-hmm. him on screen. It's 
mm-hmm. very compelling every time I see him. Yeah. 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 To kind of give you an idea of like what an afterthought Glenn Strange is the monster is in this movie and like how far Frankenstein's monster has fallen in his own damn series. Glenn Strange makes $500 for his first turn as the monster. That's crazy. Atwell and Zuko yeah. get more for cameos while Strange is doing yep. he Strange even has to do a stunt in his at least one he's scene that work. he the you know that he is in. He, he's got a stunt in there. So I mean, it's got to give yeah. you. Yep. Uh but they said no, none for you Glenn Strange. <laughs> He's picking people up. He's yeah. throwing them. Yeah. He's sinking in quicksand. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, his head kinda... goes all the way under, yeah. <laughs> so they don't think much of Glenn Strange. They don't make much of Frankenstein. And that is, you know, we talked about this early on, Brian. We talked about how by the time we get to the back half of the series, it's really not. And maybe that's why when we originally pitch the idea we're like well we'll do the Karloff movies because really by the time you get to like meets the Wolfman it's really not a Frankenstein series anymore no. it would be like if you, in the Friday the 13th movies it's like eliminating Jason for 95% of the movie yep. and like focusing on just the teens right sure so Jason goes to hell no I'm <laughs> I mean, well, <laughs> you're not completely wrong, except that I know it's like, a different thing. I, I it's a different thing. Yeah, but you know, you're not wrong. Yeah. like it would be like that if that's where the series went. If Jason Goes to Hell was like the last three movies in the series, that's what it would be like. I mean, mm-hmm. and my God, it feels like he's De Niro and Raging Bull in terms of the amount of screen time he gets when you compare it to House of Dracula next week. Oh, I know. Like, it, I mean, yeah, it's hard. blink and you miss it. I mean, I pretty do, much. I do like how Frankenstein, though, it almost became more of just like kind of the, the, the legacy name of it all. Because obviously, like, yes, a lot of people, when you think of Frankenstein, first thing you think of is the monster. However, it's like, you know, this series is just kind of all these different ripple effects that Dr. Frankenstein himself has had. Mm-hmm. So it's like everything is still stemmed from him, even if it mm-hmm. is not focusing on the monster yeah. itself, because it all still does revert back, you know, uh, to that same guy. True. Well, I think Karloff, you know, even after Son of Frankenstein, he was sort of like, I think we've milked this idea for all it has. So that's why he didn't want to play the monster again more than anything, I think. I mean, frankly, James Whale was saying he got all these ideas out in the first movie, which turned out not to be true because, you know, Bride is a very complex and rich film. But um, the uh, the idea of, you know, this the the creature only has so much breadth that you can really explore. It's the doctor... Right really that has the pathos and you know and so many of the sort of complexities that you can explore i think for longer uh through a film series and that's why i think the hammer series takes the focus onto the doctor um because i mean because i think it's been it's sort of carried out you know by the universal films what can be done with the monster well the creature is really a siphon by the middle of the series and it's how other characters react to the creature sure. like what they think of the creature how they react to it whether it's a child whether it's like one of the mad doctors whether it's one of the villagers 
whether they're able to show like whether it's Larry Talbot who actually befriends the creature sure. and actually shows yeah. some great care and, and actually sees maybe his own plight mirrored in like what the creature is going through and how they're able to like react to the creature and maybe show it some care and even Igor who for all of Igor's foibles and all of Igor's you know kind of evil he does mm-hmm. rob graves and murder some people which technically not a good thing to do um <laughs> how you react to the creature is kind of like a, a mirror of like how you are as a person in terms of your morals and your ethics and that's what the creature is a stand-in for at that point yeah i, I think so it's a yeah. siphon so, yeah um all right so our old friend kurt seal uh Seedlemack, he does get a story credit for this one but he is adamant about letting others know he did not write the script he's like look didn't write the script came up with a story he said just get all the monsters in it i gave them some ideas didn't write it Never even watched it. So I guess his new car that he got for writing meets the Wolfman. It was still running pretty well. He didn't need the work that bad. The actual screenplay is written by Edward T. Lowe, who had a lot of history in horror. Like he had written the script for The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923. So kind of interesting. You have another hunchback here. Yeah. And And a Romani character, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so, there's some similarities in that relationship. Going into that well, like digging back in. Yeah. Uh, and he written The Vampire Bat in 1933. Uh, the Hayes Code came back with some notes like, hey, when you film this, the Romani dancing scene could not be too suggestive, like no excess gyrations. Um, I did when I was re-watching it and she's twirling. I'm like, I hope she's not showing like underwear. And I'm like... You know, like just I was literally watching for that. Like, are she showing a little bit too much? Like, is the dancing too suggestive? Put those hips away. There's there's children in here. You're gonna give us a heart (laughs) attack. Put those hips away. Absolutely. Like, look, Ilanka can get it. Yeah. Give me that. (laughs) You know, we've moved away from these like haughty blondes, and now you're going to these raven-haired beauties with Ilanka. Like, I like. I'm all for it. Um. No excessive groups, gruesomeness, which none of these movies are no. gruesome. You know, and, and uh, like there's a particular note, like you had to handle Lapini's strangulation with restraint. Like it could not be overly grotesque. So. I mean, I guess is that the reason that like every action scene is like in, in the shadow or like the they do like the shadow on the wall. Uh, to mm-hmm. to kind of get around a yeah. lot of these. I mean, uh, like I mean, we really only see. Uh, someone getting like actually strangled on screen for I don't know maybe three seconds uh, if that Probably. and then after that it's like you know uh, Daniel you know like pushing them out of frame and then doing it like yeah. kind of over there yeah which is interesting because there are yeah there are actually like more brutal uh, murders in the early films like in Frankenstein mm-hmm. and Bride you actually see strangulations you see him throw the woman down the into the well of beneath the mill and everything i mean yeah so (laughs) it's just sort of interesting how more tightly enforced the Hayes code is by now even than it was in 35 when it was just first starting to be enforced enforced do you think is all of that Hayes code or do you think by the mid 40s because it's no longer like part of it is it's no longer lamelli and lamelli sees yeah 
his films as like art projects. Like there's bigger budgets, there's mm-hmm. bigger sets. James Whale is an auteur. Lamelli sees like the Frankenstein movies and the monster movies as real kind of prestige projects. And this movie, like this movie is going to get combined with the mummy's curse as a sure. double bill. That's going to go into like Nickelodeon theaters sure. and like kids will go like for 25 cents. You get two movies, a popcorn and newsreel, yeah. a soda. Like, is that part of it as well? I think so. The, the demographic is certainly uh, geared towards children in this situation. Yeah. Yeah, and they gotta get people to see uh, the mummy movies one way or another. Uh-huh. Hey, oh, sorry, mummy movies are boring. Wow, <laughs> some some well, mummy on crime there. And I think there's also a level of sensitivity to violence too, because the war is going on, and I True. think um, people are coming back injured and mm-hmm. things of that nature. So yeah. I, I think there's probably more. Um, awareness of those things like you during this time um, like it's like I watch Casablanca for example there's a part where Peter Lorre who's wearing a white you know suit jacket gets shot in the back and he falls over but there's no bullet hole there's no Mm -hmm. you know he just you hear the bang and he falls over you know I mean so it's sort of like so much of the violence is suggested at this point in movies um, and I think there are probably a lot of reasons for that. Um, the Hays Code being just one of them. Um, but movies were also geared, they were made for all audiences at this time. There was no rating system. So there's no tiered version of this. It was general audiences for every movie. Yeah. And, and we're, yeah. we're mm-hmm. a few years from Universal getting out of the horror business for quite a while. Yeah. Like making a conscious decision to say like, yeah, we're not doing horror anymore. Like that's not who our, that's not who our audience is. Like we want to do prestige pictures. Yeah. I mean, I I think they sort of threw that away when they were like, you know what? We've had one movie ever that's been nominated for best picture. And it was all quite on the Western front in 1930. And um, so Let's make movies that True. make money, right? Um, so they came back to it um, before too long. But you're okay. right. There was a period where they were, I think, attempting to make mm-hmm. um, genre fare that was not horror, like a lot of Westerns, things like that. Right. Or uh, they might call it like psychological thrillers. There you go. Mm-hmm. Like, it, And it's funny, in doing some reading, like we talk about like the 90s was that pivot where like we... Like, is Silence of the Lamb a horror movie? No, it's a psychological thriller. Like, that was what mm-hmm. directors were calling their movies in the early, early 90s. Sure. And that seemed like a new phrase then, but, like, that was a phrase that was coming up in, like, the 1940s when directors were trying to remove some stigma away from horror movies. Like, they did not want to be seen. And maybe part of that is because there was an association of like horror and monster movies at the time and not so much. They were moving towards like a more psychological edge. And I think monster movies, you know, as we see with, uh, Abbott and Costello series, they had become a joke. Yeah. You know, even by this point, people were looking at them. Oh, that's kids stuff, which, you know, isn't bad necessarily. It's just, I think how people were viewing them. So, What's not a joke is the budget. It gets a pretty decent one. It's like 350k. It is a step down from the early Frankenstein pictures, but it's not too bad for like what's a quickie. 
Uh, Ed, uh, Eric Kenton is coming back. He had directed Ghost of Frankenstein, which we had talked about not being a huge fan of just his direction on that one, but we'll talk about what we think of it here. Uh, they're repurposing sets from movies like Green Hell in Pittsburgh, uh, the medieval prison set, and the underground tunnel, respectively. And a set from Green Hell is going to be used as the uh, Frankenstein ruins. Incidentally, Green Hell, directed mm-hmm. by James Whale. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Okay. It's just kind of so an incident. a little touch yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. Um, Art directors, John B. Goodman and Martin Abzina, they're taking advantage of leftover sets from Gung Ho and the Tower of London. And you see, like, some beautiful, like, matte painting work here done here, like, especially mm-hmm. when you get to the Romani camp and you see that far-off painting of, like, the ruined Frankenstein castle. Like, yeah. You can tell it's a matte painting, but it's also, like, beautifully done, so it, yeah. I don't really mind that. I always kind of like the matte paintings in these movies. I, I think mm-hmm. they they offer sort of. I, I really like the one like in Dracula, you know, where they're coming up to Castle Dracula, and it's clearly all the whole background is matte, but um, there's something the surreal look of that sort of adds to the fantasy of it all. I think in a yeah. in a really special way. Um, I'll always yeah. love matte paintings. I want them to come back. Like, I think mm-hmm. there needs to be a trend of, cause like, e- even though like, yes, like you can like see something like it might not blend like totally perfectly, but like you said, like kind of adds to like, you know, you are watching a movie. You are like in this, like kind of more fantastical world kind of also at, like lends to like kind of the, you know, literary vibes that have always kind of permeated through these as well. Like kind of, uh, it looks like you're re- like a, like a book cover. Yeah. yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, well said. I would take that over like green screen. Oh yeah, I think, honestly. Any day, you know, I think there's still something much more tangible to it there. I would agree. Like, I think the rear, like, uh, especially in driving scenes, like, you know, to this day, like, you know, you can always tell when a driving scene is up against a green screen now, and it's just mm-hmm. like, and it kind of takes you out of it for a minute. Like we uh, discussed in like uh, when evil lurks, that's like one of the like few blemishes on that film is like mm-hmm. the green screen in the car looks so whack, and it's just like bring yeah. back, put the paintings behind it, and let's do it that way because at least if you're gonna do it and like it's not gonna uh sell as well at least make it look prettier yeah i would agree with that i'm all for that and i'm sometimes okay with a little bit of artifice letting us know that like yeah we're in a we're in a movie we are playing make pretend but there's something a bit more artistic about it so i'm all for that so we're going to talk a little bit about the cast and I think we're going to talk about John Carradine a bit more next week when we talk about House of Dracula. Unless anyone here has any initial thoughts about the career of our mustachio Dracula. The only note that I had about his career is he does resemble Mr. Peanut with fangs in this movie. Well, it's... If that gives you an idea of what I think <laughs> of John Carradine's turn as Dracula. Well, what's interesting to me is... John Carradine actually kind of looks more like Bram Stoker's description of Dracula than Bela Lugosi does or Christopher Lee or any of those sort of iconic versions, right? Um, Because he does have this sort of whitish hair and the mustache and um, the totally black clothes and things like that. Um, But but I don't know. I think it's an okay performance. It doesn't, it's, it's not 
it's he's no Lugosi, he's no um, Gary Oldman or Christopher Lee for sure. Christopher Lee, I think, is for my money probably the greatest screen Dracula. Um, but uh, yeah, it's so a, I, I'm like it's okay. It's a it's an awkward introduction because like yeah. we're like introduce like when we're introduced, he's like you know like all like scared and like you know like oh oh yeah get that snake away from me ah, and then just like okay I'll do whatever you want. It's like wait what version of Dracula is this? Like you yeah. know like he did, yeah. kind of didn't have like any assertion to him you know and like and uh, and John Carradine uh, not exactly sexy uh at least not in the dracula type of way uh his, like him he's not very alluring he's uh, quite off-putting he has like these like very intense eyes uh throughout the film which i mean i guess goes along with like you know dracula and being able to hypnotize people things like that uh but at the same time it's like you know there's with the other versions it's like oh you understand why somebody would be allured towards dracula mm-hmm. without him having to use his you know, uh, powers of persuasion versus it feels like this version is all power of persuasion. Like nobody is getting charmed uh, by this version, uh, which isn't a bad thing. I don't think it, like he's bad per se. It's just different and very odd. <laughs> yeah. We'll definitely talk more about the performance and we'll talk more about the character in a few minutes. And next week we'll talk a little bit more about the career mm-hmm. of Carradine. There are defenders of his, performance here i i did pull up a quote from the book universal monsters which has been like a really great resource for the back half of these movies where there's not as much literature as there is for obviously frankenstein bride of frankenstein even son of frankenstein for these lesser movies like this has been like a tremendous resource for research and for whatever reason the authors of this book are like absolutely gaga for Carradine. Like, I'm like, am I reading this right? Like, I had to go back and reread it. I, because I read it pretty late at night. I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I must be missing something here. So they're like, this is the quote and what they say about his turn, Carradine's turn as Dracula. John Carradine has gotten a well deserved share of applause over the years for his classy performance as Count Dracula. There are those of us who prefer. Carradine's enactment to Lugosi's, even those as eccentric Shakespearean, lacks those elements of loneliness and tragic resonation that Lugosi brought to the park. Supposedly, Lugosi was considered for the Dracula role in House of Frankenstein, but was forced to bow out on account of other commitments. I've heard that for House of Dracula, but not this one. Carradine's count is the devil incarnate, seductive, ruthless, without conscience. His subtle underplaying and impeccable appearance give the character a genuine air of distinction. I don't know what movie they watched. <laughs> I see that stupid little top hat, and I just see Mr. Peanut. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Well, you know, one of the things that I've heard is, like, um, Francis Coppola, he was talking about when he went to make Dracula, that his experience with Dracula that scared him as a kid was John Carradine that I see. Yeah. Uh, because he didn't, uh, he didn't see the Lugosi movie till much later. And so, yeah. uh, I, I find that interesting. Um, also, you know, Lugosi wears a top hat in Dracula in, in the opera scene before he, while he's 
Briefly. Briefly. Um, but Carradine makes it his whole personality. <laughs> what was funny is, you know, films. he even carries it into, he carries it, of course, in the House of Dracula, but it, it's also in Billy the Kid uh, versus Dracula, Jeez. which is um, something if you want to see a movie that is definitely a movie you saw. Um, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I would prefer not to do any of those things. That's all good. Um, and I understand. Uh, it's uh, it's the same kind of thing. I think he was more drunk on that movie, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't. I don't really see this. Um, yeah, devil incarnate, like uh, kind of like a ruthlessness. Like in this yeah. one, he's more confused than anything. Uh, yeah. He's like, you know, he's like kind of a a, a dog that just uh, got, you know, woken up from going under from surgery, and he's just like, uh oh, okay, where am I at? What am I doing? Where do you want me to go right Who's now? Who's a good boy? <laughs> Literally, like that, that's this version Who's of Dracula. A good, who's a good Dracula? I do find it that his re. You're right though. His reaction when the stake gets taken out of his chest and he sort of reforms and he's like, oh my gosh, you have a stake. I mean. I, it's it's and he tries to get Karloff to put the stake down and he can't even do that. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I see where Coppola is coming from, especially yeah. in the next movie, because there are mm-hmm. there's a confrontation that feels like the whole like Oldman and Winona Ryder romance is not lifted, but inspired directly from that in sure. House of Dracula. Yeah. So I can definitely, and I think I even noted that here. So I can see that more romantic angle okay. being lifted yeah. there. But we'll talk more about that in the next movie one. discussion in the next film. I do want to talk about Glenn Strange, because we never may get this opportunity again, because uh, he is going to take over the monster role for the rest of the series. Uh, and for like non-monster or horror fans... He's probably going to be best known for Westerns. He appeared in 222 episodes of the television series Gunsmoke, before his, which was like a long-running Western television show, like a staple, staple of like broadcast TV for years. Uh, it was like the number one show for years, and you just like everybody watched it. I mean, I think I watched reruns as a kid. Like I was vaguely familiar with it. Yeah. Um, he appeared up to his death in 1973 where he died of lung cancer and he appeared in like hundreds of Western films and television shows. Like he had like over 300 credits to his name over the course of his career before his acting career. He was an actual cowboy. He worked as a rancher, a rodeo performer, a shower, He worked as a sheriff's deputy He'd perform as a singing cowboy with his cousin on tours of the Southwest. He'd perform on the radio. And then for the first time, he was in front of a camera as a harmonica playing extra in the movie The Mounted Stranger in 1931. And again, like of his 300 film and television programs, like 95% of them were Westerns. Yeah. Hey, sometimes you don't have to act. You just live your life on screen. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Maybe they just thought they were documentaries. They were just like following him around filming. Um, six foot five. So the most physically imposing of anybody that played the monster. He had the size to play the heavier, the bad guy. So that's what he did in most of his roles. And the legend had it that like none other than Jack Pierce 
was making him up for like one of the Western movies he was appearing in. And Pierce looked at him, sized him up and said, look, I'll offer you some cash to stay after tonight. Uh, I want to try some makeup experiments in you. And Strange was like, yeah, I can definitely do that. I can make a few bucks. And when Pierce like finished putting the makeup on him, like Strange's first remarks were like, I look like Boris Karloff. So Pierce is like, yep, that's kind of what I was going for here. So I guess he was like playing with the monster makeup. That had to be. I don't think he was trying to make him look like physically Boris Karloff. <laughs> well, he, of, of all the actors that are not Karloff to play the monster, he's the one that looks the most right in the makeup. Yeah. I mean, oh, like yeah. by far, it's not even close. Um, so he's he's got the nice long sort of angular face like mm-hmm. Karloff does. Um, obviously his size helps. He's very tall. Um, the flat top looks good. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. He just, I don't know. I think he's got a, he became, you know, in for a while, he became more identifiable as the monster than Karloff was um, just because Absolutely. he played it all the time. I mean, he would make television appearances and things like that. Uh, and like personal live in-person appearances. So he did everything as the monster um, for a long time. There was, there's even some pictures going around of like the monsters playing baseball. And mm-hmm. um, there's people are like, Oh, that's Boris Karloff. It's like, I'm not so sure. I think it might be Glenn strange doing that because mm-hmm. it's um, it's hard to say because you can't really get a good, it's not a really close up picture. I also can't yeah. picture Karloff playing baseball. No, I mean, he had rickets and he had, you know, just horrible bowing in his legs and his back yeah. problems and everything. Can you picture Boris Karloff legging out a triple? Probably not. <laughs> well, he was a cricket player. He was quite a good one, oh, actually. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he uh, he helped found the uh, Hollywood, you know, cricket society or something like that. How many people were in that? Uh, it, like it was a few. Boris Karloff and like two other dudes. Yeah, it was like a little group of British actors living in mm-hmm. Hollywood. And um, it was just sort of this funny thing. But they actually had a regular game going for a yeah. while, it sounds well, like. yeah. When Karloff passed away in 1969, the New York Times, when they published his obituary, they accidentally used Glenn Strang's picture of himself in the monster makeup rather than Karloff's picture like that's how well known Glenn Strange yep. had become which is odd because like these three movies like Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein he's in that quite a bit like he's quite good in that movie and yeah. thankfully he gets quite a lot to do there um, but these first two movies like there's not a lot but you're right like he played it so often yeah. in other bits and pieces that he really made like a you know, it was a hustle. It was like what the kids now would call, like, you know, a side hustle. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think it's interesting because, like, obviously, Bar- Boris Karloff's version in the original is, like, yes, very iconic and distinct, but Strange's version is kind of more um, the look that I think of, uh, I say, like you had in the notes, is, like, more like the, the TV 
uh, kind of mm-hmm. look that they would use in like the 50s and 60s. And, like that is kind of the more of the, the Frankenstein look that I think of when I think of like the look, especially like if they're uh, translating into like something animated yeah. or something of, you know, this way or like, you know, even whenever it's not named the monster, but they're obviously drawing mm-hmm. the iconography of the monster. It's usually this one that I uh, come to mind. I'll say the flat top in this one looks a little bit awkward, um, but um, I did like how with this introduction, his his physicality is uh, distinctly very different than uh, uh, Karlovson. Like kind of uh, he doesn't walk like as symmetrical as he does. He's kind of like a little bit more loosely rigid uh, and like kind of mm-hmm. uh, very much, a you know, and, and even uh, the facial expressions that he's given in this one are quite different uh, than the ones yeah. that Karloff would give. So, like, even in the small amount of time, he did, like, make enough, like, tiny nuances to where I could, like, uh, distinctly tell the difference between the two versions. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I kind of made a note here, and I wanted to pose it to both of you. Like, to me, I feel like Glenn Strange is the Kane Hodder of the Frankenstein series. In that, like, he's really well known for playing the role. He's not necessarily the best Frankenstein, and he doesn't appear in the best Frankenstein movies, but he's really well known and well, and he's beloved for it, but he never got a chance to play one in a great Frankenstein movie. Does that feel like an apt comparison, or am I stretching here? No, I think that's pretty apt. I think that's good. I think that's pretty spot on, honestly. Yeah, because yeah, like yeah. I, I do always find it interesting how Hotter is like you know kind of uh, heralded as as you know the best performer, but I'm like he's in all the movies that nobody likes. <laughs> you know, poor yeah. guy. Yeah. Because when I watch Friday the Thirteenth, I think of like Ted White in Part Four, is sure. like the best Jason. Yeah. And Kane Hodder is very good. But you're right, like, he's in the worst four Friday movies. (laughs) Except for Jason Goes to Hell, which is I Will Defend. Oh, yeah, I mean, sure. Um, And if we want to make more comparisons, I guess I would call Boris Karloff the Robert Englund of the Frankenstein series. Because he embodies that character so much that Mm -hmm. when other people do it, it's just not the same. All right. And I I got to say, I think it does help that his name was Glenn strange mm-hmm. uh to be a horror icon and have that name i think is yeah. pretty nice and i remember when my dad told me that the actor's name was glenn strange when i was a little kid i just thought that was hilarious it's like wow <laughs> that's amazing and i just loved if that was, so much for a while if it was, it was like, glenn normal you'd be out i'd be out yeah yeah <laughs> couple quick notes and a couple more performers uh, J. Carol Nash, who gives our turn, is poor lovelorn Daniel the Hunchback. I just kind of go in through his filmography. He makes a career out of like playing really <laughs> problematic roles. And I'm not saying it's him personally. I'm saying at the time, like you kind of take what's given. Sure. He plays a murderous hunchback here. So number one, he's playing a person with a disability in a way that, you know, is yeah. not very favorable to them. Right. Okay. So that's strike one. In 1958-59, he takes on the lead role of Charlie Chan for 39 episodes oh in a revival of the TV show. As far as I know, there's not a hint of anything Asian about J. Carroll Nation. I don't even know if he liked to go for Chinese food. 
you know, let alone had a hint of any Asian ancestry in him. And he's playing Charlie Chan. So yellow face. Insane. Strike two. Yeah. Okay. We're going to go back a little further to 1950. In Annie Get Your Gun, he plays Chief Sitting Bull. I'm not even going to say anything else because I'll just get in trouble. I'm just leaving it at that. He plays Chief Sitting Bull. In Annie, get your gun. I mean, it's like once or twice, you know, you can uh, oh explain it away with the, the times. But then uh, when you get this many racked up in your resume, uh, I don't know. It seems like you're doing it on purpose. <laughs> well, I mean, but then you have people like Karloff and Lee who also played, you know, Dr. Fu Manchu yeah. and... Uh, you know, and this is just what it was at the time. You were just assigned to roles, yeah. and you didn't have a lot of say in it necessarily. Yeah. So yeah. he does play an uncle in one episode guest spot on the show, The Man from Uncle. I couldn't confirm if he was actually an uncle. I'll let that one slide. <laughs> um, his last on-screen role was in the movie Dracula versus Frankenstein <laughs> in 1971. Oh, where he played Dr. Dorea, which is an alias for Dr. Frankenstein. And Lon Chaney Jr. actually plays his assistant in that role, which is kind of a nice little switch. I don't know if, he, Brian, you're laughing. I haven't you seen, seen it yet, but it's, it's on... It's awful. It's on my list. I'm doing a... I'm doing my next article for the Frankenstein series is going to be what I dub the weirdos. They're the movies mm-hmm. that don't... They're not quite parodies... They're, they sort of fit into that time period between 1931 and 1970-ish, mm-hmm. that, but they're not Universal or Hammer movies. And um, this one's on the list to watch, and I'm afraid. This movie is... You know how you just said this is a movie that you can watch and say, I have watched something that is technically called a movie. Yeah. This is on that list. Yeah. Um, I also have Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter on that list. So um, it's going to be an interesting, uh, you know, couple months here. It, um, do you mind if I spoil it? Go for it. Go for it. So I watched I watched this as a young kid on like a creature double feature on a Saturday. And even as like an eight year old kid, I'm like, this is garbage. Frankenstein's monster looks like a garbage pail kid stretched out to eight feet. Yeah. I've seen the the picture. The climactic fight is like Dracula and Frankenstein fighting outside. And Dracula literally rips the limbs off of Frankenstein one at a time and he rips his head off at the end (laughs) and he does it at like six in the morning so then the sun comes up and frank and dracula dies it is really something so enjoy that yeah i'm uh, well you know um there's a lot on that list that i'm like i they i you know i was a teenage frankenstein and Mm-hmm. Lady Frankenstein. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World, the uh, kaiju movie, uh, could could be interesting to to see what's what's I've got coming up, cooking up you for that next one. Coming. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll briefly mention. Uh, I don't have a ton on Elena Verdugo, who plays our poor doomed Romani uh, dancer Ilanka. 
Um, she has a career in Hollywood and a number of like B pictures in the 40s and 50s. She'll appear again with Cheney Jr. and his Wolfman co-star. Uh, Evelyn anchors the next year in The Frozen Ghost. His horror starts to go out of fashion in the latter part of the 40s. She'll transition into westerns like El Dorado Pass and The Big Sombrero. And then in noir, such as like she'll uh, shed no tears. She really finds a niche as a player in television in the 1950s. She has like a number of one-off appearances in television shows in its infancy. Before she really lands like uh, one of the first leading performances in a comedy called Meet Millie in 1952. It ran for 106 episodes and she's the star of the show. Like so she's one of the first real leading ladies of television. And then after that, when it ends in 1956, like she just starts doing like guest spots, like for numerous shows for years and years. Like she's always working. And in what would be like really the third act of her career, she lands like probably the most plum role of her career. Like she gets Emmy nominated turns in this role. She plays uh, Consuelo Lopez on the show Marcus Welby, M.D., she uh, is like the top, uh, the top labeled woman on the show. Uh, it runs for 169 episodes between 1969 and 1976, way before my time. So it's not yeah. something that you see, but you know, just one of those persons that you see here. You're like, oh, I kind of like her. I like this performance. I wonder what else she's done. And then you see this like really varied career. Nothing that is of major interest to horror fans, but I mean, you know, yeah. you can tell though. I mean, it's like I felt like in this movie, is like mm-hmm. as soon as she's on screen, she was one of those people. I was like, oh, she's got the sauce, like she's she's yeah. got that thing, mm-hmm. you know. So you can tell that you know she was gonna kind of go on to uh, have a filmography like this, you know. Obviously, pairing yeah. her up with Talbot in this, and in general, these movies can get a little bit, you know, a little bit uh, mopey at times, a little bit, you know, kind of uh, yeah. uh, dramatic in that way, and she you know brings uh, some nice little spice to the uh brings a, a little bit more of that fun energy for the film yeah i i really like her here i love the character of ilanka i think it's really the first it's really the first woman in a few movies that's actually had something to do mm-hmm. i think and i think there's like a little bit of like a melodrama in the relationship with her and Talbot, it gives Talbot something to do besides mope for some of the movie. Yeah. Um, and I love me a raven haired beauty. So I think they, yeah. I think they pop off the screen in black and white better. I mean, I, I prefer dark, yeah. dark haired women myself as well, but like, I think they even just like look better than blondes on, in black and white mm-hmm. films. And I mean, she has this yeah. great curvaceous curls and stuff. I love it. Like she, mm-hmm. she looks fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So the movie's out December of 44. It's a, you know, it's a hit. People love it. Uh, It does pretty well at the theater. It does okay with critics as well. I've got a couple reviews I pulled up. I'll read a couple of these to y'all, then we'll move on to our discussion. So from the Hollywood Citizen News, a thriller deluxe, a film guaranteed to provide a cute case of the jitters. From the New York Times critic A.H. Weiler, it's like a baseball team with nine Babe Ruths, but this grisly Congress doesn't hit hard 
It merely has speed and a change of pace. <laughs> what? Are people is... like, I mean, who, what movie are they watching? Like that analogy the... is like not even close to anything in this film. I know. That's so funny. Far less critical back then, That's so right? so funny. We were, uh, it is bound to garner as many chuckles as it does chills, which I think I, I can buy that <laughs> That's one. That's from the New York Daily Mirror, there is enough gore to satisfy even the most avid reveler in vicarious bloodshed. Which I'm like, is there what? any gore in this? I, I was about to say, I don't think there's a drop of blood. Not yeah. a single drop. <laughs> you see a couple brains in a jar. That's about it. Yeah, I think you do spot a little bit of blood on Ilanka okay. when she crawls over to Larry Talbot. Yeah, but. That is a stretch. Like, I am really stretching. Like, I am doing my most fervent yoga pose <laughs> to get to that. We're doing some downward dog to yeah. get there. All right. So that is the background. And again, I am stunned we got that much background out of it. Well, it's like it's a new phase, you know, again, like, because now we are in the, the intertwining uh, uh you know, phase of, of these films. And so, you know, got to introduce all the other players. So where should we start? I think we all of us agree that like the, I could be wrong, but this is Boris Karloff's movie, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like Dr. Neymar. I think he is. What do you love about him? I think he's very different from like a classic Dr. Frankenstein and like, in that, you know, he's usually kind of uh, struggling with his morals a little bit more and, like, kind of uh, things like that. He kind of sways back and forth between, like, you know, his devotion to his science, but then, like, also trying to, uh, you know, appeal to the perception of people. Uh, Neymar, he's, uh, no, he's he's not quibbling with any ethical qualms. Uh, he's swapping brains left and right, uh, you know, having, having Daniel kill people. He, like... Uh, he he gives me like shades of like uh like Sweeney Todd meets Herbert West mm-hmm. uh in a way like you know he kind of has the arrogance of West uh but then also like his uh you know hell bent revenge angle uh gives me like some Sweeney Todd vibes so like I I like that this is like the the first half of this is you know a solid like revenge thriller where he's like all right I got my things like yes I need to go find the work of Frankenstein. But on the way there, I need to take care of some business, uh, you know, and uh, so I kind of like the the whole angle and taking the the uh, carnival uh, like little trailer because it's like, oh, like perfect cover up. Nobody will suspect, you know, the things that we're doing in here because under the guise of like this, you know, cabinet of horrors or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think he's a, I think he's a very interesting character. I really like uh, the energy and like performance he's bringing uh, with this one. He has, uh, you know, some very. Uh, like stiff eyes and just like some of the looks that he's given people and uh, and his uh, slimy manipulation too of like you know like him you know uh, treating Daniel like you know because at certain points they're like oh he does kind of care for Daniel in a way and they are like equal partners but then it's like no it is all a veneer uh, you know yeah. for him manipulating Daniel throughout and then you fucking feel like really bad for Daniel uh, by the I, I don't always feel bad for the assistant characters uh, but in this one, I was like, I had, I had some sympathies for Daniel, even though he's a cold-blooded murderer. But I still felt some things for him because of the way uh, his relationship was with Neymar. Do you think Neymar is who people think of when they actually think of like a Dr. Frankenstein type character? Yes. 
like the cold-blooded mad scientist. I, I had that exact thought whenever I was watching this. I was like, this is more my idea of like, yeah, the classic like mad scientist. Like, uh, again, I'm going to bring it up as I did in the first one. Uh, in Alvin, the chipmunks meet Frankenstein. Their version of the doctor is a lot more closer to Neymar than, uh, than mm-hmm. Dr. Frankenstein, like way closer. Mm-hmm. This is um, making me think more of, I think he's got more in common with Peter Cushing than Colin Clive. Oh, yeah. Um, and also it's sort of a throwback to things like from the Expressionist period, Rot Wang from uh, Metropolis and Caligari, things like that. There's just like the mad scientist, kind of crazy hair looking, you know, that, that sort of thing, you know. Um, uh, and Karloff, you know, chewing the scenery doesn't hurt it you know i think it just feeds into sort of the fun of it all um so i yeah i think this is feels more like a precursor to cushing um and characters of that nature what do you think it was for karloff to get a chance to play kind of the other side of the coin after doing like three movies under the heavy makeup and having the monster and not really getting to speak. Mm -hmm. And now he gets to play like the other side of it where now you're the genius man of science, uh, but you're a bit mad. He played a few roles like this in the Columbia years. Um, Though those are usually good natured kinds of guys. Um, They're more like Colin Clive's character where you know, you you have they they're they're idealizing science and they're not like narcissists. And I think mm-hmm. for him to just go for it and be the baddie, <laughs> you know, completely unsympathetic. I think I think it's just fun to play a total villain, and I think he's reveling in how fun that is. Uh, in a way, he's maybe preparing, you know, a less well-written version of Cabman Gray from, uh, from the body snatcher, you mm-hmm. know, it's, uh, a purely evil individual, you know, and, and when you think relishes in the misery of others for his own ends. And when you think about it too, like he is very prepared because like, even though he's, you know, previously been playing the monster, he's been in these movies and he understands, you know, the character of the mad scientist. So he's able to, you know, add in different nuances to this performance because he understands how to make it slightly different. Like he's like, oh, I want to like, this is my chance to explore the the doctor character. And I don't want to go into this, you know, this more maniacal, darker uh, side where it's like at first it's like he you know comes off as like oh he's kind of a Frankenstein fanboy uh, but then it's like as the film goes on he, uh, it's like oh no like he like you know very much like has you know his more priorities and then there's an evolution of him like of wanting to find you know Frankenstein's work and everything but at the same time he also revels in the times where he gets to be like oh 
I'm actually like Frankenstein was wrong about this and I actually know this. So it's like he has these, uh, you know, he's always searching for these opportunities to like kind of uh, one up this, uh, you know, other person who doesn't even have like a connection to it. But like he's but he's feel so strongly about it uh, that at one point he's like, yes, I admire and, you know, follow you. But then it's like, oh, no, but I can be better than Frankenstein. And I think mm-hmm. that's a very interesting angle for Neymar. Oh, too, I think, too, what I like is you get some very interesting visual shorthand right away mm-hmm. in the art direction when we're introduced to him. In that, when you see his cell, it is co- every square inch of it is covered with that chalk mm-hmm. where he has all of his equations. And as an audience member, you look at that and you immediately realize something is not right with this person. And then you have that larger kind of mural or that kind of uh, chalkboard where it's like, what is his main experiment? What landed him in prison? I want to put the brain of a human in a dog. And you realize how horrific an idea that is. Like, and also, like, we love dogs like more than people. Like, you don't hurt. Like, John Wick taught us that. You don't <laughs> harm dogs. Um, so you, uh, without... Karlov, even having to say a word, you know this is a bad person, uh, and he is evil. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, um, you know, that's another shout out for like poor things is like, you know, that's right. like with uh, uh, Godwin's character, him like switching brains with animals and things like that. And that's such a, a part of that film. So it's like, again, like, you know, even though that film has like, you know, inspirations of Frankenstein. I see a lot of Neymar in, uh, in that, mm-hmm. in that character as well. Uh, in yeah, that he is, uh, and he's so calm about it too. And like, and I really love the introduction too, like of him, like snatching up the guard for his chalk. And I was like, Oh mm-hmm. shit, like this guy is not playing games. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I really liked, um, him, uh, kind of having this like a snappiness to him. And what does the guard call him in that moment after he gets snatched and dropped? He Brian, I think you calls him that. a would-be Frankenstein. I love that. Yeah, Absolutely, it's a great moment. And do you think that's a? Do you think when that line is written, your our writer like kicks back a little bit, puts his feet up, pours himself a shot, <laughs> and is like, or is that like he nods a little wink and a nod, or is that like nope, it's a Frankenstein movie? I have to throw that in there. Well, I think, you know, you have the text and you have the meta text, you know, so I mm-hmm. think they're they're playing with both there yeah. um, to have Karloff in that role yeah. and the name of the monster being equated to the name of the mm-hmm. doctor and all kinds of things yeah. over the years. So uh, I think you're having a good time with that, with yourself yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Structurally, this movie is a bit odd. Yes. In that it feels a bit like it, almost like an anthology in that or like it tries to be it tries to be yeah in that unlike frankenstein meets the wolfman which when we steven brian and i when we discussed it last week we had a bit of a debate about whether or not the title was accurate because like the fight is so short at the end although it's not frankenstein versus the wolf man it's they meet which they do (laughs) they meet and they kind of become buddies yeah here none of our monsters really meet like the wolf man in frankenstein they don't have really any interaction with one another at all in this movie 
which is a bit of a shame mm-hmm. given the chemistry between the two characters in the previous outing. And Dracula does not have any interaction at all with either the Wolfman or the monster. It's really not until Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein that all three of them are going to like interact quite frequently in any of these movies for reasons that don't make any sense or are ever explained or that we ever really care about because the movie's just so much damn fun. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's interesting structurally when you're having these films because it's like, yes, how do we, you know, obviously like have the story and make it feel natural to weave these characters in and out. Um, and again, like I'm a big fan of uh, Stephen Summers' Van Helsing from 2004, uh, uh, Penny Dreadful. You've mentioned that before. I, I, I did because it's a fantastic so movie. People need to watch it. You're comfortable mentioning that in a public setting. Oh, 100. Uh, percent Good for uh, you. Uh, uh, it, watch them rewatch it. If you haven't watched yeah. it in a good while, it holds it better than you think. But um, <laughs> but I like the structure of like the way that that one weaves the the different characters kind of in and out, and so does uh, mm-hmm. Penny Dreadful does an interesting. Uh, version of doing that as well of uh you know and and these guys they also had the luxury of you know knowing that you know there's a pretty legitimate shot we're gonna keep you know getting to do stuff so it's like it's kind of interesting that dracula is introduced he gets his thing to do and then just like kind of uh quietly backs out of the movie and then like ah we'll save him for the next movie you'll get some more of him later you know so it's like he served his purpose and then you know then we kind of focus the rest on like i was surprised i like i was genuinely surprised how much wolfman was in this movie like i wasn't Mm -hmm. expecting him to kind of have as big of a role as he did um, but I like, you know, Neymar using Dracula as an attack dog, essentially, to be like, all right, I'm going to wake you up. I'm going to make you a deal. I'll I'll make sure I'll make your coffin bed uh, if you kill these people for me. And Dracula goes, yes, bet. I would love nothing more. Uh, it's just like um, a, a funny way to use the character again in kind of a awkward introduction. Um, but then the way that he serves a purpose versus the way that... Um, uh, Talbot, you know, he because he knows where the 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 work is, and you know all these things, and like he kind of has uh, his own role to play. So I, I think it's a, it's a little bit um uh, like segmented, could have been weaved a bit smoother. Um, because I see what you're talking about with like uh, the pseudo anthology kind of uh, aspect to yeah. it, but you know could have been smoother. But at the same time, it's like you know e- each character at least did have a specific purpose. It wasn't just hey, let's throw all these characters together on screen and throw them all in the movie together. Like, they did each have, like, something to do for the story, and still without yeah. taking away from Neymar still kind of being the star of the show. Mm-hmm. What I feel on this watch, I didn't really think about it before this watch, but this time through, it feels like the Neymar thing is being set up as a frame story. It's like, okay, we're going to take revenge on these three guys. So we've got our monsters we've got dracula we've got the wolfman we have frankenstein's monster so they do the dracula story they wrote the dracula story they filmed the dracula story and then they said okay forget it we're just gonna have it all happen at the same time from then on out like it was originally going to be an anthology where like the wolfman took up the second part of the movie or something like that and had his own sort of self-contained story within there and then they have a story with you know with it ending with the Frankenstein monster killing the third guy, you know, that's kind of how, because that Dracula story is so separate 
from the rest of the movie that it just feels like it's its own antho- anthological story, you know? <laughs> and um, so that's, I guess, how I felt while I was watching it. Um, yeah. But, and, and then they just decided not to do the anthology for the other two thirds of the movie, you know? Um, but I don't know. I, I would love if like a year from now, they uncover like an hour of footage or really 40 minutes of footage because these movies mm-hmm. are like 70 minutes long and it's all John Carradine's Dracula and they realize it was so terrible they cut it and then they had to make this. Like originally House of Frankenstein was just a Carradine Dracula movie, but it was so awful they cut most of it. <laughs> um, you're, you're really hard on Mr. I Carradine. I really am not yeah. a big fan no, of his. No, um, okay. no but... You know, it really hit me on this watch is what this is. Is it's not a Dracula movie. It's not a Frankenstein movie. And in even like for a Kurt Cetomac story, which if Kurt Cetomac is is coming up with a story, Larry Talbot's going to be in it and yeah. he's going to take a big part. Like that's his dog right there. Like literally, he's the Wolfman guy. Mm-hmm. It's really a Doctor Neiman movie, absolutely from start to finish. To the degree that you almost wonder if they're setting. Karloff up to appear in more of these sure. like as a traveling mad scientist and you could see two three four more of these movies down the road yeah and it's his quest for revenge against the men that have imprisoned him and that's why it feels so episodic like he goes and to the first yeah. part he gets his revenge he goes to the second and gets it against the other two guys and that's yeah. why it feels so convoluted yeah, and I th- and I think that's why because it's a Neymar movie that when it goes to the Dracula story and he's not there, it just feels so mm-hmm. awkward to me. It just, it yeah. just feels out of. It's I don't know how I don't think I'm very expressing this very well. It's sort of no, like, you are, and then mm-hmm. and c- because then it's, they like decide to just kill off the second two guys just like that. I mean, I mean, there's no. There's nothing. There's really yeah, nothing about it. Yeah, they're like afterthoughts. Yeah, they're afterthoughts. Yeah, it's like like they um, changed their mind halfway through the movie of what they were going to do. So it's weirder next week when the movie is yeah. called House of Dracula, and Dracula is killed off at about the same point in the movie. Okay. Yeah. And it becomes a completely different, which is, but it's also like a super fun Jekyll and Hyde movie after that. Sure. Oh, like it, yeah. it is. Like when Dracula is killed off, because that was the first time I had watched it, and I'm like, "Wait a minute, this is called House of Dracula, and he dead." And then it becomes a Jekyll and Hyde movie, and I'm like, "Oh, this is awesome! Like, I'm really enjoying this now. It's quite, quite fun." And your hunchback is actually like your Ilanka and Daniel character combined, mm-hmm. um, and it's quite awesome. Um, I really enjoy that movie quite a bit so i'm looking forward to talking about yeah. that one one thing i appreciate about the universal monsters world is that it's a world without doubt and that like neiman like when he's riding and when he and daniel are riding with lampini after their escape and by the way kenton's direction in this movie like we kind of came down harsh on him for ghost of frankenstein because that movie does look really flat there's like not a lot of great angles to it. The lighting is pretty bland. Everything just feels kind of like, especially coming off of the first three movies. Here, there's like a lot more shadow. Mm-hmm. There's storms look great. The sets look much better. So I'm not saying Kenton is like 
greatly improved, but there's he does shoot some good action sequences, I yeah. would say. Like the Dracula sequence is pretty thrilling when he's kind of trying to get away in the horse and buggy. Although Dracula having to get away in a horse and buggy as an idea right is pretty ridiculous yeah i thought this was uh um, i thought it was pretty solidly made like it's a it's a yeah it, this movie feels a, it feels a little more loose uh like yes. i i think while the action scenes i think are decent um it, but you know i think we've seen kind of better but i think the way that he even just films conversations like there's kind of mm-hmm. a, a light bounciness uh to to the yeah. uh to the way they shoots them and they don't feel as like um sometimes some of these films can feel a bit stagey you know, and I don't feel that at all with this one. This feels like very much like a like a you know mm-hmm. realistic like uh, like kind of more film in that kind of way. Uh, so I, I really yeah. like the way that uh, he does uh, dialogue, especially between like Daniel and Alanka, yeah. or Alanka and um, Talbot. Yeah, visually, I've... it feels more of a piece with the rest of the franchise than Ghost of Frankenstein does. Uh, it feels like it fits in with. Um, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and, and even the first three, it just has a similar uh, carryover in the look. And I think that is, um, a, it, it's just, it's surprising that it's the same director, I guess, as ghost mm-hmm. and, and yeah. to have it look, but you know, you also have, you know, a more, I think probably forceful producers saying, okay, this is the look of the movie. So mm-hmm. it, there's a lot of things that go into those no. sorts of choices too. So, yeah. Well, one thing I like is that in this world, the monsters are just accepted. Mm-hmm. That, like, Frankenstein's monster is just accepted as a thing that's happened. It's part of the town's history. It's part of the folklore. There's no doubt, like, these are actual, like, historical events of record. People believe it. People believe that, like, werewolves are a thing. And there's no one. You don't have that segment of the film where you're saying like no that's ridiculous this can't be a werewolf it's just accepted that like and werewolves are and i love that they're over it too that's the that was the really (laughs) funny part whenever uh they're like no you you we're not uh we didn't approve your warrant uh or uh your your thingy so so you gotta go you don't have a permit Uh, your permit yeah and uh he's like so you're gonna have to go and he's like why there's nothing wrong with it and they're just like we're done with horrors we are tired of it we don't want and you know starts telling about what happened uh but yeah i love that they you know that horrors are just a a thing in this world like it's just now we're pretty chill with it all it's like Haddonfield in Halloween 6, Curse of Michael Myers, where they're like, yeah, we're not celebrating. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to do what we should have done after Halloween 1 and 2. Like, we're just going to cancel Halloween going forward every year. Like, we're just or, not going to celebrate this stupid holiday anymore. You know, and I w- Crystal Lake changing its name to Forest Green in part 6. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I wish more films, we've kind of gotten a, we kind of got away from that in like, uh, like the 80s and 90s because I, I always give like Japanese uh horror films a good amount of credit too because like they just accept that like supernatural things are just Mm -hmm. things so then you can focus the story on more other stuff rather than spending you know a chunk of the film of being like i don't believe you or no you didn't see that you're crazy like you know we don't don't got time for that like they're just in the world and let's move on now because that just adds like 20 to 30 minutes to a movie 
that is already too long. Then you're getting to like an hour and 53 to 200, two hour and 12 minute run times in what should be like 85 to 90 minutes of a movie. And it's like 20 minutes of disbelief, basically. And it's like, oh, I don't need this. Like Even like Neiman's character, like Neiman and Daniel, when they're riding with a great Lampini, like they don't doubt that Count Dracula exists. Like they exist. Count Dracula, the vampire is a historical figure of, of record. What they doubt is that some carny rube like Lampini is the guy that would have the bones. And that's what I love. And what makes it great is like after they dispatch of Lampini and they take over his role and they're like, are you the Lampini I ran out of town three years ago? That was my brother, um, which is just Karloff having a meal. Um, When Karloff pulls out the steak, and take and out of a fit of like just anger and takes two steps away and then pauses not because he believes like oh what if and it's a great little moment <laughs> i really really love that about this movie it's just fun it's just yeah. a fun little gimmick yeah. I mean, there's a lot of gimmicks in this movie. Even how they escape from the prison in the beginning. There's just like this freak <laughs> earthquake. It's like, oh, hey, let's tunnel out through the, through the floor. Of the roof place. just fell out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So these are poorly designed prisons. These are. If like a bad rainstorm will cause like, these are not. This is not Shawshank. Like no. imagine. Yeah, Andy is getting out of Shawshank in like two weeks. <laughs> if uh, he was put in Valseria, so let's yeah. just put it that way. And, and even the way that they like um, when they you know uh, take the you know whenever they are in the carriage with him, and then whenever they reveal themselves, I just like love like how quickly like he like you know like because that was Nimari, like he had to put on a normal person mask for a second to like and be like hey can we get a ride? But then after that he's like nope, let me go ahead and take that off, and he mm-hmm. instantly switches into and then just like the way he just like points to Daniel, take care of him. And then just like this mm-hmm. smoothness and ways, just like, and now the driver. I was just like, oh, okay. You're, yes. You're like, Karloff is cooking. Yeah. Yeah. And I and feel Nate- like Daniel is, you know, more of Neymar's puppet than, yeah. you know, than a cold blooded killer per se. I mean, he's sort of under his thumb and, um, He's like, he's promised to heal me, so I'm going to do whatever he says. You know, so I, I feel like he sort of takes on the role of the Frankenstein monster in some yeah. ways because he's the, he's, he, at least in like Son of Frankenstein and to some extent in Bride, where he's just sort of like the blunt instrument. He's the one who's, who takes care of all the dirty work for Pretorius or for Igor. Um, but, um, because he's gonna, you know, get something out of it, uh, but he himself is kind of an. At times, at least, there's some empathy that can be directed toward him. So I, I mean, it's more of a means to an end for him. But yeah. you know, he's like you know, but he does like optimistically do believe that you know, like yes, he's gonna he's gonna do what he says uh, he's gonna do, and so I, I find him fascinating in that way. But yet he's still 
ends up, you know, following the tropes of the past uh, assistance of, you know, yeah. like, you know, by the end of the movie, he's getting jealous of uh, the monster's body because Neymar is working on him and not, you know, fixing him. And we got, you know, the classic him whipping him because we right. just got to have, you know, every assistant has to whip the monster at some point. It's just that's just an unspoken rule, apparently. Um, but it's him like kind of falling into like the same uh, you know, kind of trappings and feelings that, you know, the previous ones have had. But at the same time, his uh, is, you know, he's he's not the like kind of uh, he's not like the worshiping assistant, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, some of the other assistants are where there's like, oh, my God, like I'm obsessed with the doctor, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, Daniel wants to do his own thing. He wants to go take walks. He wants to talk to girls. Uh, you know, he wants to do his own stuff. But then he's just like, oh, well, you know, because I still haven't got my body fixed. I still got to do what Dr. Neymar says. Um, so I'm, I, I find them uh, fascinating in that way. And with like some of the like really wonderful, like um, essays I've seen of people like with a uh, kind of uh, trans allegories and poor things, I could see a kind of similar uh, with uh, Daniel of kind of having a, a, a body dysmorphia kind of angle to him that like, he's, he's still comfortable with himself, but he, he, he still wants, you know, this uh you know you know quote unquote beautiful perfect body for the perception of others you know and it only takes just one person seeing past that and him like being like oh she doesn't really care like you know and he like kind of starts you know feeling better until he gets jealous of larry so like uh i i think daniel is uh one of the more interesting assistant characters Mm -hmm. for me could you talk a little more about that dysmorphia angle like would you feel comfortable digging into that or was that just like a oh i mean it's not i mean it's not something that i can uh, exactly speak on um but in some of like like i said some of the readings that i've uh, kind of seen from uh you know these discussions of uh of poor things like kind of had a lot more of you know mm-hmm. um you know just uh he again he like it i even think that the word choicing of him saying beautiful body is like very specific mm-hmm. um because it's you know not uh, again it's not coming from him but it's other people's perception you know of him mm-hmm. and, and it's other people's perception is what helps right. is what shapes his kind of uh perception of his body but at the same time it's still something he wants just for himself as well so uh, I, I i find it fascinating but uh yeah there's definitely a uh, uh, smart people that could uh and that come from a uh that background that could uh, probably speak out a little bit better than me <laughs> Well, what is the the last insult that Alonka hurls at Daniel when she's angry at him at the end? Like when Daniel reveals to Alonka, like, look, like Larry isn't who you think he is. Like Larry is a werewolf and he doesn't reveal this information for completely altruistic reasons. Like part of it is jealousy. I don't think he does it purely out of jealousy. I think part of it is also like, He's going to be unsafe to be around if you're with him. And she reacts in such a way because, like, she believes him. She does a thing where, like, I don't believe you, but I actually do because that's why I'm going to react so over the top. The last thing she says to him is, like, you're ugly. Like, that's the last insult she hurls at him because she knows, like, that is going to be the one that is going to cut him the deepest because that is the one that he is so entrenched in his psyche that he's going to believe that one the most. You know, you're uh, mean and you're cruel and you're ugly. And that is the one that's going to sting him the most. And, and the fact that he cares 
much more about again like you said like that you know that cuts him more than being like Mm -hmm. oh like uh no you're an ugly person because you're a murderer uh you know not Mm -hmm. because of you know your physical uh appearance um but even still that's gonna hurt him more than like the idea Mm -hmm. of like because he has no qualms that he's a murderer he says it out loud he's just like oh yeah yeah you know i've done these things um but yeah uh kind of says and yeah we've seen hints of this throughout the series we've seen hints of it in bride of frankenstein when the monster peers into the lake and he sees his reflection and starts like gesturing at the water trying to get the reflection to go away you've seen it in son of frankenstein when the monster sees his reflection in the mirror and then pulls um wolf to the mirror and compares the two of them their like physical appearances with one another and he makes that gesture the monster often makes when he's confused or pleading Mm -hmm. like why am i like this like he's repulsed by his own figure and it's uh igor who understands what the monster is experiencing because igor is also not deformed he has the hunchback and the broken neck and igor is the one who knows what the monster needs. So he turns the mirror away from the monster so he doesn't have to see that. So we see that dysmorphia throughout the series. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, something that we could like really dig into here. And I'm making a note. It's times like the only time I ever miss doing psychoanalysis, <laughs> a horror therapy <laughs> podcast is when stuff like this comes up. Otherwise, sure. uh, the, you know, we have a lot on our plates and uh, I do miss doing talking with Jen and Laura every week, but you know, otherwise we're very busy people. So, um, what else? I mean, let's stay on this track though with like, Daniel and Larry and uh, Elanka because I think they are kind of the heart of this movie. Mm-hmm. Again, we mentioned like uh, emo Larry Talbot, like this is his <laughs> third turn as the Wolfman. Is it a little bit much at this point? Like, is Larry's act? wearing a little bit thin he is i just want to die he has got his hair bangs in front of one eye for this entire movie because he is just moping and sobbing uh and you know like but i mean i guess i understand to one degree because it's like he kind of got what he wanted and he's being frozen so he's not having to deal with it so he's just like ah you woke me up like if you're gonna do that you might as well kill me um but then this is uh having him uh, and you know, that's kind of another, just like fun aspect of these monster mashup movies. Cause it's, you can be like, yeah, let's have a love triangle between the hunchback assistant, the wolf man and a beautiful Romani woman. Yeah. Let's go ahead and do that because we can, you know? So it's like, it also, um, uh, I think, uh, you know, helps, helps in that way. Um, uh, I mean, do I think, I, you know, I don't think, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. is like phoning it in or bad or anything. Cause he does still have some really great scenes with Alonka. Um, but at the same time, yeah, he is the biggest baby in this one. Just, Oh, Oh, woe is me. Uh, you know, and, and, and you don't even know if like, you know, obviously Neymar says he could cure him, but like, we don't even know if that's how it works whenever he starts explaining, putting certain brains in a certain bodies it's like is uh lycanthropism is that a mind thing or is that more of a body thing so it's like mm, i don't know but um yeah his his inclusion was uh again i just didn't expect him to have like as large of a role as he did in the back half of this 
I think it's interesting that uh, you mentioned that the screenwriter also did the screenplay for Hunchback of Notre Dame because, um, yeah, the whole Daniel Alonka thing is pretty much Quasimodo and Esmeralda. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's he's enticed by her dancing. I mean, th there's all sorts of things. And then another Can you blame him? another right, of course. And then another man comes into the picture. Um, you know, the first this beautiful woman who um you know gives him attention and sees him uh, as a as a i guess beautiful soul you know you know sees past his outer appearance whatever you want to say there's lots of similarities between the two um there and it's interesting because i never if you watch the hunchback of notre dame movies i don't think of those as horror movies at all and they always seem to get lumped in with it and i think it's mm -hmm. maybe likely because of a movie like this you know where on the poster the quote-unquote hunchback is listed as one of the monsters of the monster mash in both is it house the of makeup? dracula and house of frankenstein yeah i think it's the makeup is it possible the makeup of the hunchback in notre dame yeah especially i think in uh the lon cheney version from mm -hmm. 23 um though charles lawton's you know he's got a it, it's pretty much as victor hugo described it i believe though okay. um i haven't read that book in a long time but um but the it's not really a monster story i mean that's not mm -hmm. what uh the movies really reflect it's not really what the book reflects either um so it's just sort of was like universal was like saying hey we have this property that we used you know 20 years ago let's add it to the list of something we can put in here right um and and they've they used the the trope in various ways of course you know in frankenstein let's be honest there is something a bit barbaric and grotesque about just taking a physical deformity yep. and being like a monster exactly so i do want to be clear about that absolutely like that is... mm -hmm. and 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 that is the way that character starts in this movie mm -hmm. i mean it's like it's that you you get yeah. the feeling that life has been very hard for daniel mm -hmm. right i mean you see him he's in he we are introduced to him in prison we have no context of like why he's there he says to Dr. Frankenstein, like, I've killed four men for you. So we've only seen him kill four people on screen. So we don't, as far as we know, he was not a murderer before he's gone on this path with Dr. Neiman for, like, this plot. Mm -hmm. So you could see him being tossed in this prison cell for no other reason than either his association with Neiman or just the fact that he has a physical disability right. and the persons don't like it. So therefore we're going to shutter you away, which as we know, there is a long history of incarcerating persons with physical mm -hmm. and mental disabilities. We're going to shutter them away and give them not the care they deserve yeah. uh, and, and need. And we're going to like take away uh, their rights and their dignity. And that's frankly anyway, part going, of what that's yeah. part of what Hugo was speaking out against in Hunchback of Notre Dame, for mm -hmm. example, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway. So but what we see, I think, with Alonka here, there's something very childlike about her. Mm -hmm. 
she is cruel to Daniel in her final moments, yeah. but she's very much a victim too. Like we see the treatment of her by her other Romani brethren. There is like when um, the gentleman, the man who runs the encampment, suggests to the officers like, "Oh, she'll dance for you as well." You know that in twenty twenty four terms definitely carries a hint of some trafficking that is going on there. Like, what will that dance entail? Um, there is definitely maybe a more insidious like suggestion that might be going on there as well. Um, she's very much under the thumb and there's physical abuse that we physically, we just see it on screen. He beats her with a belt until Daniel comes to her rescue. So there's something very childlike about this woman as well. She meets Talbot and she brings out something in him that has not been there since his transformation in the Wolfman, and that is like an element of maybe hope. Mm -hmm. And it's not the most well-developed romance in cinematic history, um, but it's something that hasn't been present for like two movies now either. I, I, I like that her character too isn't, like Alanka's like not a like hostage or anything in this. Like she's with mm -hmm. them because she wants to be. She's like I'm getting rides. Yeah. I got people to talk to, and it's like it's a, almost uh, endearing when you're. It's like she kind of uh, you know uh, inserts herself and like kind of bands together this like you know little crew of misfits like almost if you squint your eyes a found family but not really um, right. uh, um you know but at the same time like you know <laughs> she is like kind of like you said bringing uh you know bringing things out of talbot like trying to give him like kind of re-motive you know motivation to live again uh because at this point he is just over it um uh, you know so it's like uh in in that way that she like kind of is there to bring people together as well like rather than uh just her being like oh yeah we took her from these people and now you're with us because we're forcing you to say it's like i like that it's uh they they use her to uh you know be the uh to 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 be the the moral center as far as talbot goes i don't know how much of this is like a purposeful development of his character but each subsequent appearance of his in human form he gets more violent when he doesn't get his way he gets more desperate to get cured of his lycan lycanthropy and as he gets more desperate he gets more like he get he gets more angry as he gets more angry he gets more likely to put his hands on other people. You see it here mm -hmm. with Neiman at the end where he's ready to murder Neiman when Neiman says like, I just can't operate on you right now. This instance, as you can see, I am doing other things and you see a progression in the next movie. And especially in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, he's ready to beat the shit out of Bud Abbott for just having a monster mask. Like each subsequent movie, Lawrence Talbot becomes increasingly unhinged in human form. And I don't know how much of that is a purposeful development of character. I don't know how much of that is just Lon Chaney on set mm -hmm. taking liberties. I don't know how much of that is happy accident, but you can watch all five of his appearances and you can see that progression. I mean, if it is supposed to be like a character progression, I think it's interesting because like, you know, he, uh, you know, spends so much time, like, you know, not accepting it. Like, Hey, that like, you know, when you're, you know, the wolf, you know, man, part of you inside of you, something that's out of your control. It sucks, but it's also like, doesn't make you 
personally a bad person. It's just like, you know, it's just something you kind of, mm. well, I mean, just something you asked it. I would say putting your hands on well, people no, I'm and saying, to murder them makes you Well, no, I'm person. saying in wolf form. In human form. No, I'm saying in wolf but form, in man form, he, he okay. can't control. Like, that's what, that's mm-hmm. the lesson he should be learning is what I'm saying. Uh, yes. But in human form, it's like, no, like, that's the part of you that makes you a monster is when mm-hmm. you want to strangle somebody in yeah. human form. Yes, that is what, like, not the actual you know kind of monster part of him mm-hmm. so if that is intentional i think it's a uh, very fascinating my take would be i doubt that the screenwriters and yeah. filmmakers were that intentional but it is an interesting um progression of the character uh so yeah it's well spotted for would- sure I would say you're probably right, yeah. but I do see it. I would say one thing I noticed here is during the second transformation scene in particular, and I think with the advances they're able to make, what you notice is like there's more like facial movement. And along with that, you see some recognition and some real fear and anger. Like before, like the face would be perfectly static. And it was still very cool looking to see like the hair appear and then that transition. Sure. Here you can see the judder and the eyes, like the mouth judder and the eyes move a bit. Right. And along with that, some real kind of recognition of what's happening to him in that moment, some rage that it's occurring and some real fear about what's going to happen as well. Yeah. And I really like that. It is sense sadly of, like... Yeah, sort of a sense of continuity and the yeah. lap div- dissolves just saying, hey, you know, yeah. do this mm-hmm. while we're... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man. So for a movie called House of Frankenstein, there is a remarkably little of Frankenstein monster, right? Like, mm-hmm. Devon, I know you have some thoughts on this, right? Yeah. I mean, I kind of forgot about them. I mean, and not in a bad way, because I was enjoying what we were doing with these characters, with uh, with Neiman and Daniel and the Wolfman. And, uh, and so I, like, wasn't missing the monster per se. But at the same time, I, I just like kind of I was like, wait, how much more of this movie is there? And I was like, and he's still on the slab sleeping uh, like he's still not even been revived yet at this point. So I was just kind of like, uh, all righty. But, uh, you know, uh, it, but for me personally, even though, yes, it is in the title, um, I wasn't like, uh, you know, like m- like missing him in a bad way. Because, again, like, you know, I've kind of accepted now just Frankenstein is the name and uh, everything, you know, all the characters underneath have their part to play. And I mean, and he honestly didn't have too much to do except, you know, for throwing Daniel out a window. <laughs> it's true. Which is pretty awesome. Yeah. I right. mean, that is pretty awesome. Well, one of the things, even in the revival scene, um, the monster is clearly a dummy for like yeah. a three or four like close shots. It's not even mm-hmm. like they're trying to hide it. It's just so obvious um because they wanted to get the sparks coming off of him or something yep. like that but uh it's, it's just sort of i don't know it's it's awkward a little bit but it's it's a shame because like strange definitely fits the suit yeah like he's physically imposing and like while he does move in that kind of stilted stiff-legged way he fills up so much of the screen when he's on that he is a bit of a menace. Yeah. Uh, and he's a lot more like his facial expressions. Like, he's way more expressive than Lugosi and Chaney were. Yeah. And I like, you, you see that here. And when you watch him, like, break out of the straps, like, it's pretty cool looking. Mm-hmm. Like, I would have dug, like, a lot more of watching him 
on screen. So it is kind of disappointing you don't get more of him only for that reason. Because I like his performance as the monster and want more of that. Like for the same reasons like you and Steven wanted more of like the fight last week. Like, hey, like this would be cool to watch. Like I wanted another few scenes with like Glenn Strange as the monster because I'm really enjoying him. Um, I kind of miss the days of the monster terrorizing the countryside. Yeah. You know, and I think there's kind of a missed opportunity uh, in a movie called House of Frankenstein to not have that. I mean, there mm-hmm. you have the villagers chasing him, but he doesn't really get his chance to mm-hmm. create the mayhem like he did in yeah. the early films. Hey, it is called House of Frankenstein, and he does stay in the house. Uh, he does not leave. <laughs> uh, we do not see him outside of the building uh, in this really? film. <laughs> It's really the house of Neiman. I mean, it's yeah. really when you think about it, it's his house. Yeah. Um, a couple notes on the Dracula things here. I do have, we talked a bit about it. I think my main performance with like John Carradine as Dracula is like his attempts at menace come off as feeble. Like we talked about that stunt standoff with him and Neiman. And when he's like, put down the stake and Neiman's like, no, no. <laughs> And Dracula's response is like, okay. Damn it, you got me there. <laughs> and you got me. That, yeah. that elevates Neiman mm-hmm. a bit it does. as a character, but it really hurts the aura of Count Dracula. Yeah. And that shouldn't happen. Um, and then there's also the whole thing with the like the prop, the ring. You know, he, yeah. he uses the ring as a way to control her. I, I can't yeah. even remember the character's names and so little she's no. in it. Because, uh, I mean, like, the thing about Lugosi was the eyes. You know, you mm-hmm. the eyes are so hypnotic that they will entrap whoever mm-hmm. that he's just looking at. Um, and you can kind of feel that power in that movie. Here, it's yeah. like, I, I don't get it. I mean, not that Universal was ever, you know, too strict on continuity of lore or anything like that, but... It's just sort of like, why does Dracula need a magic ring to... You see him when he tries it. Yeah. It looks ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like, his eyes go big. Yeah. And it's like, you look silly. It, 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 again, um, it's like, what you're, what you're doing you, what you're doing right now, you think is sexy. It's not. Uh, you know, it's like, again, Lugosi doesn't even need to use his powers if he doesn't have no. to. He could persuade you on his own versus, yeah, this version of Dracula yeah. just needs, a, he needs that ring to let you know that you're going steady with Dracula. Yeah. And it's so gaudy. It's just yeah. like this giant. It's like something that Tony Soprano would wear, right? <laughs> it's this giant pinky. And it's just weird. Like nobody um, ever, when you think of Dracula Lord, everybody's like, oh, yeah, you know Dracula's ring. You know, his, his trusty ring that he uses so often. <laughs> the problem, too, is like in both of these movies, in this in House of Dracula, Dracula is done in by his inability to tell time because he puts both of his schemes into motion at like 20 minutes to sunrise, right? Like the one thing that's going to kill Dracula is the sunrise. And he's like, what if I put this really complicated time sensitive plan into motion and give myself like 15 minutes to execute it? It's pretty silly. And what I, what I love too is when he's making his getaway and like Neiman has told him, 
you know, like, I'll serve you well. Don't worry about it. I got your back. I'm your bro. We're good. And Dracula's riding to him. And Daniel's like, I got an idea, my man. And he throws Dracula's coffin out of the back. (laughs) And you see, the one thing I love is Carradine's face when he throws the coffin. And he's like, oh, shit. And it's, it's the Joe Bluth, I made a terrible mistake look. He's like, and then the carriage breaks off. Like Dracula's own horse breaks off from the carriage. And Dracula goes tumbling into a ditch like a little bitch. It's like all of the allure of Count Dracula. He comes off like such a little boob. He doesn't, he doesn't have and the it's... confidence. Like, it's it's very funny. Like, if you're Dracula, you kind of have to know you're the shit. And this version of Dracula forgot that he's the shit. And thusly, he gets pushed like, around for the whole movie. Like, you got to have that confidence. Like, do you know who should have played this? Like, Michael, like Jesse, Jesse Eisenberger, Michael Sarah. <laughs> Should have played this Dracula. Because there's such little beasts. He's just like Man. he's such a boob in this movie. I really need like, a I, I really need Michael Sarah as Dracula now. That's an amazing image you put in my brain. Oh my goodness. I mean he could probably do it after what Mike what can he'd probably nail it too. He'd probably be amazing. And I'd have to eat my words. So, all right. Do we have any other thoughts or can we put House of Frankenstein behind uh, us? I will say the one uh, plus I will give uh, this Dracula is uh, his, uh, the, the reconstitution of his bones into, uh, into physical form. That effect looked pretty good. Sure. Like I, I will say, yeah. looked yeah. pretty nice. Yeah. It's kind of uh, similar to the reconstitution of the invisible man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty cool looking. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, I think we've done it. Yeah. We've done six of these now. Six we got a couple left. Wow. Getting wow. close. We're going to make it. Getting close to the end. We're yeah. going to make it. So that is our talk on House of Frankenstein. But before we go, let's do some plugs. And Devon, what's going on with the Spectre Cinema Club? It's a new year. It's a new month. Yeah. It's the month of romance. I'm sure you got some love going on. What do you got yeah, going on? Yeah, we've been having there? some fun. We spent January uh, going over some of the best of 2023, but now we are firmly in 2024 uh, uh, diving into erotic thrillers uh, over there. So we are uh, having some fun. Uh, we uh, just covered Double Lover, a French film, but then we're going to be going into uh, some of the heavy hitters like Eyes Wide Shut and uh, Body Double as well. Uh, so, yeah, we're having fun over there. You can uh, catch me and Garrett McDowell uh, every Tuesday over there. And we also uh, launched our Patreon over on Spectre Cinema. So, you know, we're, we're trying to do some big things over here. Excellent. And where can folks find you? And you can find me at all the usual places, Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd, at underscore Daddy Disco. Great. Brian, how about yourself? Uh, Not much new. Uh, So just a reiteration of what I've been saying. We've got our uh, Snowbound episode of Movies for Life uh, with Fargo and the Gray coming up. It should be out when this gets posted. And then yesterday we recorded our Imaginary Friends episode with Harvey and Drop Dead Fred. Then that ended up being a lot of fun. Um, And then I personally have uh, my piece on the Hammer Frankenstein series hitting Manor Vellum uh, sometime this month. And so keep your eyes out for that if you're into that sort of thing. And you can find me in the usual places at Brian Waves 42. Excellent. Excellent. 
So for us, you go to podinthependulum.com where you can get all of our back episodes over 220 plus at this point. All of our franchises are there. It's really easy to go and uh, find anything. It's really nicely arranged. You can also like leave us uh, comments there as well. Get some really nice comments there. Also, make sure you are subscribing, rating, and reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts. Really, Apple is the big one. If you head over to Apple, please rate, review, and subscribe to us. I say this every week. Been stuck at 120 for a little while, uh, so I keep making this plea. Uh, but if you're new to listening to us, take two minutes, take a moment right now, leave us five stars and a few kind words. It really goes a long way to Luton listeners finding us. If you've left a review before, but it's been a long time, I think you can leave another review. So maybe go ahead and cheat a little bit and do that. Tell our listen, other listeners or potential listeners why you really like the show. We do have a Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum where we have all of our bonus content. We put bonus episodes up every month. Last month, we didn't cover a movie. Steven and I did Oscar talk. We kind of gave our uh, discussion on some of the nominees. It was something a little bit different. Um, I just kind of felt like it was a fun, loose discussion. Brian and Steven have discussed doing uh, a couple of different things and you know we're in the middle like i think we're gonna rearrange things a little bit ariel's given me some help right there but we already have about 50 hours of bonus material up right now of full-length episodes so go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum for as little as two bucks there is a ton of bonus material out there we will be back next week with our latest episode on the Frankenstein series where we go to the house of Dracula. It's a super fun movie. It really doesn't qualify as a Frankenstein movie. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> and then we go to Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. Then we go to our next franchise, which will be paranormal activity. So we're going back to modern times. I'm very excited. That's one of my favorite series. Uh, I have a couple guests lined up already, so I'm pretty psyched to have uh, some discussions on that one. We may have like one episode in between them just to give a little bit of time to do some of the research in, uh, on a couple of the movies and give ourselves a little bit of breather. I have a bonus episode in the can that we might deploy in between them. But that is it for right now. Uh, before we go... I wanted to um, say one brief thing. I wanted to say condolences to two, the, the friends and family of two icons that passed yesterday on the uh, 2nd of February. Um, you know, we're recording this on the 3rd, so this is going to post a week later. But yesterday we lost uh, Wayne Kramer, the guitarist of the MC5, one of the uh, proto-punk bands from Detroit, uh, one of the greatest guitarists of all time, the MC5, one of the biggest influences uh, for a lot of the music I listen to. So I would queue up, kick out the jams uh, today. We're going to end today by playing that song, kick out the jams. That'll be our outro for today. But a uh, longtime guitarist, uh, outspoken activist, but also uh, rest in peace, Mr. Carl Weathers, who passed away 
uh, one of the just most charismatic performers in Hollywood history. I mean, Predator, Action Jackson, then that pivot to comedy with Happy Gilmore as Chubbs and then Arrested Development playing himself and not afraid to... He really developed that character of himself saying, I don't want to do Rocky jokes, make me really cheap. Uh, then earning an Emmy for his uh, turn on the uh, Mandalorian beloved by so many people, but really best known uh, as Apollo Creed, taking a character that really should have been like a one-note foil for Rocky to overcome, and just through like his charisma, his charm, his ability, turning that into like one of the most iconic and beloved characters really in cinema history. Like Apollo is probably the first movie character death that really hit me as a kid in Rocky IV. Um, and as the accolades and the uh, remembrance have come out, like, no one has a bad thing to say about Carl Weathers. He just seems, like, universally loved by so many. I just wanted to wish condolences uh, to friends and family. No, it's a week later as his post, but I did want to say something here. So, And that is it. Everybody have a great week, and we'll be back with the House of Dracula. Take care, all. Kick out the jail! Yeah! Kick out the jail! I done kicked them out!
Shut up, Happy. Don't feel bad about me. I got my hand back, see? We've only just begun to live white lace and promises. A kiss for luck and we're 